You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to today's episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. Today I continue the conversation about leadership and want to talk about the qualities, traits, and behaviors of an empowered leader. I hope you'll use this podcast as a time for self-evaluation. Take an honest look at how you measure up to the traits, qualities, and behaviors of an empowered leader. Celebrate those areas where you match and notice the ones you don't. Make a decision about whether you want to develop those qualities, traits, and behaviors within yourself. If you do, take this growth opportunity to learn, practice, and grow in those areas. The first quality of an empowered leader is having a knowledge about how people learn and how they're motivated. They understand the difference between discipline and punishment, and they're not looking to punish people when they don't perform as expected. They're looking to discipline, and discipline means to teach. Punishment means to inflict pain. When you're a leader and you're inflicting pain, you're tending to alienate the worker and not get the best work that you possibly can from them. They'll work for you as long as they aren't being punished. They'll work just enough so that they don't get the punishment, but they'll never give you their best effort. They won't give you their creativity. They won't give you their passion. People aren't motivated by punishment. In choice theory, we like to use three examples of how people are motivated so that you can understand that motivation is internal instead of external. People try to motivate employees with incentives and bonuses, and while they'll work for those things, what you're actually doing is creating a workforce that will only work if they're being rewarded to do so. Instead of fanning the flame of internal motivation, the benefits that come from doing a job well done, the happiness a person feels when they know they've contributed to the vision and mission of their organization. So the first example is how many people answer a ringing phone. Most people do, and they'll also clarify it by saying, well, I'll check the caller ID and decide if I really want to answer. So the idea is if external things made us behave in a particular way, a ringing phone would make you answer it. You couldn't choose anything else, but we know that's a bit ridiculous. And if the phone is ringing, we make a decision based on what's happening inside of us about whether or not we want to answer that phone. The second example involves a traffic light. Most people stop at red lights. However, when I'm working with audiences and I ask how many people in this room ever intentionally drove through a red light, and surprisingly, 25 to 50% of the people usually raise their hand. When I asked them why they drove through the red light, they had various answers. Maybe it was slippery and they decided it would be more dangerous to try to stop on the slippery roads. It might be that they were in an emergency, they were late, they thought the light was broken. They have many answers for why they intentionally drove through. The idea is that the red light doesn't make us stop. All the red light does is give us information that it might not be safe to go through the intersection. I like to ask people to imagine that they're late for work and they've already been reprimanded for coming in late and were told that if they were late again, they were going to lose their job. One night they've set their alarm, but they forget to turn it on. 
And so they overslept and they jump out of bed and realize they have just about enough time to throw some clothes on and run out the door, jump in the car and get to work. And they come upon a red light and they have a decision to make. If they go through, they might make it to work on time. If they sit there and wait, they won't. I ask how many people would go through the light. Most people say they'd go through that light. There's usually a handful of people who might say, no, it's the law to stay put at a light. I'm going to sit there and wait for it to turn green. I up the ante a little bit for those people who say that they were willing to go through and tell them that when they search the intersection to make sure it's safe to go through the red light, they notice a police car in the parking lot watching the light. I ask how many people go through then? And the number drastically decreases. There may be one or two people who still say they would go through the light. When I ask them why, some have said it's because if they get pulled over, then they'll have a ticket to show their boss as their reason for not getting to work on time. Other people have said they drive a fast car and they think they could outrun the police. And other people say that they would be so driven by the threat of losing their job that they wouldn't care about the ticket. That shows me something interesting about punishment. The police officer sitting at the light represents potential punishment. You will get a ticket. You'll have to pay a fine. You may have points added to your license. And if you already have points on your license, there's a chance you could lose your license and your insurance may increase. So there's a lot of reasons not to go through that light. It's punishment personified. Most people will respond to punishment because people don't like pain. They'll comply so that they won't have to experience whatever pain is being threatened. However, you'll notice that there are people whose cause exceeds their fear of pain. So I'll ask this question. Same scenario has nothing to do with work, but you're still sitting at a red light. And when you look, you see the police officer. But there's one other piece of information. This time, there's a child in the back of your car who's bleeding profusely. And I'm not talking bleeding that they might need a stitch or two. I'm talking about potential loss of life because of the massive amounts of blood that the child is losing. How many people would go through the light? Everyone raises their hand, believing that the police will follow them, turn on their sirens, and might provide a path through to get to the emergency room. That may in fact happen. And when I ask them their expectation, of course they think that when the police officer sees the situation, there'll be no ticket issued. But if I say, what if the police officer is a stickler for the law and you broke the law and you still get a ticket? The person says, fine, I'll pay the ticket. I broke the law, I did the deed, I deserve it. But getting that child to the emergency room was more important than anything else. So this is something I want you to remember as a leader, that people are not motivated by threats. They're not motivated by punishment. They actually are motivated while you're watching, but you have to watch all the time to make sure that your threats and your punishment work. That is not the way an empowered leader spends their time. An empowered leader understands that all behavior is purposeful. This means that people do not do things randomly. If someone is engaged in a behavior, it's actually their best behavior in that moment to get something that they want. You may not know what it is they want, and you may want them to be focused on something else, but you know that the behavior is purposeful. 
And if everyone is doing their best to get something they want at a particular point in time, then why would you want to punish them for doing the most important thing to them at that moment? You might want to teach them a different way. That's where discipline comes in. When people have responsible ways to get their needs met, they won't choose less responsible ones. The idea is to teach more responsible ways to get their needs met so that they don't do things in a less responsible way. Then I like to distinguish between two types of behavior. We have effective behavior and we have responsible behavior, and they're not always the same. All responsible behavior is effective, but not all effective behavior is responsible. What I mean by effective behavior is simply that it works. If a person's looking to have fun at work, then going around to other people's desks and joking with them and taking their mind off of work is effective for the person who's doing the joking. They're getting their fun need met. It's not responsible because it's preventing other workers from doing what's important to them, which is getting their work done. So a responsible behavior is one that works for you, but also doesn't interfere with other people who are trying to get what they want most at that particular time. The idea as a leader is that you're trying to help workers develop responsible and effective behaviors, not just effective ones. We're talking about people choosing their best attempt to get their needs met at a particular point in time. What's actually true is they're behaving to get what they want in that moment that they believe will meet their needs the best. It's an indirect path to meeting your needs. You're trying to get what you want. But I wanted you to know, if you don't already know, what those basic needs are. We have five basic needs of all humans. The first one is connection. Everyone needs to be connected to other people, to the vision and mission of the company, to you as their leader. People need to have connection. The second one is safety and security. Safety and security at work is an important thing that you, the leader, certainly impact. You create the culture. If you have a culture where people backstab, gossip, are oppressive, prejudicial, then you do not have a safe work environment. It's not just about physical safety. It's also about emotional safety. And people have the need to feel safe and secure. So you'll see effective but not responsible behaviors coming out in workers who don't feel safe. The third need is the need for freedom. Freedom is a need that we all have. We like our autonomy. We like to have a lot of choices and we like to engage our creativity. When people are in a workplace where they can't meet this need for freedom, it can be extremely frustrating. The fourth need is joy. People like to have joy in their life. They like to create joy and they like to have moments of joy. This could mean the wild and crazy fun of children. It could mean the quiet, relaxing fun, like a nap at their desk, 10-minute power nap. And it could mean meaningful learning. All of those things provide joy. Ask yourself the question as the leader, are you providing joy for your people in the workplace? How can they get that met? And the final need is significance. People need to feel significant, and especially at work. They want to know that the things they're doing contribute to the overall vision and mission of the organization. They like to feel competent and to know that they're good at what they do. A leader's job is to create a need-satisfying culture for everyone, including themselves. 
The workplace needs to be an environment where people are able to get all five of those basic needs met if they want to. What are some qualities, traits, and behaviors of the empowered leader? The first thing is empowered leaders know their direct reports and what motivates them. I like to do an exercise in my leadership workshops where I'll ask leaders, do they know these four things about the people who report directly to them? The first one, do they know something that they like to do for fun outside of work? Do they know about one important person in that employee's life? Are they aware of something that employee is proud of or a strength they value? And do they know the need that motivates that employee the most? If they don't, I challenge them to go back to work and learn those things organically through regular conversation about the people who report to them. I don't want them to go back and grill their employees, tell me what you do for fun, tell me who's important to you, tell me something that you're proud of or one of your best strengths. That would feel very inorganic. I want it to be something that just naturally unfolds during the course of the relationship. I'm a big fan of Deming, who talked about total quality management. And in his work, he talked about most of the problems in the workplace are systemic problems, not individual problems. So an empowered leader doesn't spend a lot of time trying to figure out what's wrong with the people in their organization, but rather they look at what is the problem with the system that doesn't allow the people to be successful. And they need to remember that they are also part of the system. When employees are being asked to do a new task or job, leaders engage the workers in a discussion of the quality of the work to be done and the time it'll take to do it. They also talk about what resources will be necessary. It becomes a collaboration rather than a directive from on high. Leaders understand that most people are visual. So when leaders are asking for a new job, they will show the workers how to do it rather than just tell them. They want their people to see exactly what's expected. Leaders know that their workers are their biggest asset. So whenever a change is coming or something new is happening, they want to get the feedback from their workers to understand the change from their perspective. An empowered leader knows that they have a lofty view of the overall expectations of what's being asked. They don't have that bird's eye view that the line people have, the people who are actually doing the work. So they know they're missing that important component and will seek it out from the people who are actually doing the work. Leaders are facilitators. They're not dictators. They don't tell their people what to do. They facilitate conversations around the best way to do things and what's expected. They also like to use small cooperative groups as much as possible. The salient word in that sentence being cooperative. If you have a group that isn't cooperative, the empowered leader knows that there's some work to be done building on the relationships in that group and helping workers understand diversity and being able to celebrate difference instead of struggle with it. Empowered leaders like to work with cooperative groups, meaning groups that work well together to help them get the feedback that they need. Small cooperative groups are more important than large ones because there are some people in large groups who are intimidated and never speak up. There are other people in large groups who monopolize the conversation. 
when you have a small cooperative group, it's the best size to be able to get the information that you need, maybe between four and eight, maybe 12 at the most people to get feedback from. Leaders are constantly working to provide the best workplace and resources for their employees. Sometimes it's possible that that can't happen. There may be budget or regulatory constraints that don't allow that. There may be upper management that says it's not possible. But as much as possible, empowered leaders get their workers the best tools and workplace that they need to perform their jobs. When it's not possible, they take the time to speak to their workers about why it's not possible and ask that they make do with what they have. As long as this isn't happening all the time, workers will be willing to comply. But if they see it's a pattern of behavior that there's never enough, that they never have what they need to do their job well, you'll start to see some disgruntled workers. Leaders ask their employees to self-evaluate their own work for quality. This self-evaluation process can be incredibly productive as long as two things are in place. You want your workers to be honest in their self-evaluation and the sharing with you of that, and you also want them to be accurate. How do you get honest self-evaluation? Well, you can't force it. You can't make someone tell you the truth, but you can create the conditions that will make it more likely. And how do you get people to tell the truth? You remove the consequences for telling the truth. If people think that they're going to be punished for giving you the honest answer to their self-evaluation, they likely aren't going to give it to you. Or they might give it to you once, but then if they experience punishment as the result of honesty, they're learning pretty quickly that they shouldn't be honest with you if they want to avoid punishment. The way to create the environment that facilitates honesty is to tell people you are asking them to self-evaluate, not because you want to blame them, but because you want to assist them. You want to make sure they have what they need to do better. You want to give them the training they need, the resources they need, the help they need, and maybe even your own assistance to be able to help them be successful. The second one is accuracy. When I'm talking about accuracy, I mean that you and the employee would have similar assessments. The only way I know to make that possible is to agree ahead of time on what you're assessing. When you're both working from the same criteria, it will be more likely that the self-evaluation will be accurate. When it isn't, you have the criteria to go back to and to inquire about. So if someone overemphasizes their ability to do a certain thing, you can go back and you can ask about the specific criteria you're concerned with. Employees learn more from their leader's hard work and caring attitude than they do from their style. When employees can see you as the leader working just as hard as they do, that goes a long way to develop a positive workforce. If they think that they're working hard like indentured servants while you're kicked back in your office working on your golf putts, that is not gonna help them be the employee that you want them to be. A caring attitude also expresses that you care about them as people and that you also care that they get their work done and that their work is quality. 
So it's not just a soft caring about whatever obstacles might be in their way or whatever's going on in their personal life. It's also caring about them as an employee, about their desire to be good at what they do and to make a difference and to matter. So if you're caring enough to help them with those things, that's also built into that caring attitude that an empowered leader would have. Finally, if problems arise in the workplace, and that probably should be said not if, but when problems arise in the workplace, you roll up your sleeves and you dive right in. You are not pointing fingers and looking for whose fault it is and saying, well, what are you going to do to fix this? You're being more of a team player and asking, how can we work together to get this done? How can we make this happen? How can we fix this? And it's not just in words that you're using we, you're also willing to actually get in the trenches and to help correct something that's been going on that's not working. There's other qualities and behaviors of leaders that are more future focused that I want to mention. Leaders identify new ways of doing things. They're never really satisfied with the status quo. If they have something that's working, that's awesome. They can coast with that for a short time, but it's only a short time because they'll be wanting to see, okay, this is good, but what will make this even better? So the idea that quality is a moving target and they're always striving for better and better. Empowered leaders keep their agreements when they say they're going to do something, they move heaven and earth to make sure that it happens. They also hold their direct reports accountable for their agreements. When an empowered leader takes the time to create a plan with a worker and they don't follow through on that plan to make sure it's being accomplished, it's almost like they're communicating to the worker that the plan didn't matter to them, that they took the time to make it, but they really don't care about the outcome. So you need to hold people accountable for their own agreements. Leaders are constantly looking for improvements. They plan for the future. They don't wait for a crisis to occur before they reactively put something into place. They're looking ahead to solve potential problems and to find potential possibilities and opportunities. So they're constantly surveying the environment out there and paying attention to what's going on and looking for where to best invest their energy. Empowered leaders are really good at engaging others to take action. You might think of this as delegating, but delegating feels like dumping. It's not about dumping work onto someone else. It's about inspiring people with their vision, with their hard work, with their caring attitude to take action. When you work for someone who leads in that way, you are looking for ways to help. You wanna join in, particularly if you are on board with the vision and mission of the organization. Empowered leaders build relationships based on trust. If you'd like more on trust, I suggest reading Stephen Covey's book, The Speed of Trust. It's an excellent book about how people rise to the level of the expectation. So if you expect people to be honest, you'll have more honesty. If you expect people to be deceitful, you'll have more deceit. Leaders think and act strategically. We talked about this earlier about how most problems are system problems. Empowered leaders are constantly thinking strategically rather than individually. Leaders are focused on innovation and change. 
They're also responsible for creating the culture in the workplace. Leaders model the culture that they want to see propagated. Part of that culture needs to be the use of the connecting relationship habits. You can learn more about those in Episode 7. The idea of connecting relationship habits is to listen, support, encourage, trust, respect, accept, and negotiate differences. I could go into detail on those, but that's already been done in Episode 7. The idea is that relationship is the root of all influence. And influence is what the empowered leader has at their disposal. Empowered leaders also embrace diversity, inclusion, and development. They recognize that through our differences, we grow stronger, that in our difference, we need to be sure everyone is included and has the comfort to speak up and say what's on their mind. And development is about using that diversity to create new things and to make sure that everyone is included in the idea of how to move that project forward. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast and the self-evaluation that may have created in you. If you're looking for a workshop in your place of employment or perhaps some business coaching, you can reach out for me at kim at coachingforexcellence.biz. That's B as in boy, I as in India, Z as in zebra coachingforexcellence.biz. I hope you'll join me next week when I'll be switching topics to education. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast and remember to subscribe.